0: Welcome to Firelocks, the podcast. I am Bill Patrick, your host from the 4th Company Brigade of Guards, and here we are. It is mid-April. The Guards, we are uh, preparing for our next event, which will be the first weekend of May, the Revolutionary War Weekend at Mount Vernon. But in the meantime, as I mentioned last episode, there are two especially great events happening this coming weekend, April 13th and 14th, along the East Coast here. There is, of course, Battle Road up in Lexington, Massachusetts and then the Battle of Bound Brook in South Bound Brook, New Jersey. So uh, if any of you find yourself in those areas or nearby this coming weekend, please do check them out for some great living history action. But moving on quickly, this time to our uh, episode and our guest, we are joined by Mr. Gregory Storacci, who is a private in our fourth company's Recreated Coldstream Guards. He serves as the historian, kind of the material culture expert for us. He also has several decades of living history experience under his belt. So uh, the idea was for him to join us to kind of answer some basic questions, some reenacting 101, if you will, kind of the the typical questions we get from either spectators or prospective recruits to the hobby. Um, But what really happened was we had a a much deeper conversation considering all the eras that Gregory has reenacted or taken uh, part in living history and kind of contrasted his his experiences uh, doing things anything from ancient Rome to Civil War um, compared them with the American Revolution living history experience so we've got kind of a smattering for everyone I think this time around Um, kind of again answering some of those basic questions for some of you out there who might be considering jumping into the hobby of American Revolution living history but also uh, for the veterans out there I think Gregory offers some very unique perspectives that certainly I had not considered or heard before so uh, with Without further ado, here is Gregory Starachi, the fourth company's own historian. Okay, Gregory. Hey, man, thanks for joining us. It's great to have a, uh, a friendly face on the podcast. Of course, all of our guests are always friendly, but uh, Another Guard is always uh, always fun to chat, and especially with with your level of experience in the hobby and, and just across all kinds of different time periods. Um, I think it's going to be really, really interesting discussion. So Let's get it kicked off and uh, maybe just give the listeners a background of how you started in the hobby. I know you started young and you've done all kinds of different things. So um, how's it been? How's it been all these years doing it?
1: Good, Bill. Well, uh, thanks for having me. Um, And listeners, thanks for listening into us. I know Bill's podcast or the company podcast that Bill's been putting together uh, seems to be growing in interest. So um, I appreciate the honor of uh, uh, getting featured on it. So my story on reenacting, um, I'm, I'm 41 years old, and I started maybe somewhere between 10 and 12. I don't remember the exact year but um, or the exact age I was at. What I do remember is that my sister was dating this guy who I think wound up becoming a, a history teacher at some point later on in his life. But anyway, it was a history enthusiast and had gotten come back. From it must have been the 125th anniversary of Gettysburg, which probably would have been that would have been 1988, which probably would have put me at about 11 or 12, 11 years old. And he had just come back from that. And the guy was an amateur photographer and took lots of amazing photographs of hundreds and thousands of Civil War reenactors recreating Pickett's Charge and, and Devil's Den and all these great. Um, uh, iconic uh, aspects of the three days at Gettysburg. And I remember seeing that and going, wow, this is awesome. This is, you know, again, remember this is the mind of a 12 year old. These are adults um, basically running around with real guns, shooting blanks, uh, playing, you know, historical army, if you will. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this is the stuff I was doing with cap guns and my friends, but their uniforms and guns were better. And so I said, this is great. I want this. And I remember talking to my mom, Hey, I want to get into reenacting. And she said, "Okay, well, yeah, there's a reenactment every year uh, down in River Edge, which is uh, Newbridge Landing, which is actually a historic site that does a reenactment. I believe coming up in August. And Newbridge Landing was the site of um, uh, quite a few skirmishes. Um, it's also now the site of the von von Steuben House, and it, which is was given to von Steuben after the war. Okay. And so I wound up going to this." to this uh wound up going to this reenactment and it was a, a revolutionary war reenactment and I, I think i wanted to do civil war at the time but i, I wasn't you know I, I, beggars can't be choosers and uh and, and and their stuff looked just as good too so i wound up going there and i don't exactly know how we got connected but there was a militia unit burden county militia uh, they no longer exist although outwaters militia would probably be the closest surviving relative of them uh was there and they said they were looking for a drummer and they had a drum and uh if i wanted to join my mom would have to join too so you know this was like in the bad old days of reenacting so my mom got her molly pitcher outfit together and i got a frock coat and a tricord hat and a drum and we started reenacting and so that that kicked it off and i did that for i don't know a number of years and probably about the age of 14 um at that point i'm getting a bit older a bit bigger was getting more interested in in the firearms and but yet wasn't 16 which was the uh, bar uh regulation to shoot um and i think uh, you know once you get into the reenacting community i know we're going to talk about this a little bit more you like getting in is the hardest part once you're in the whole world opens up to you and so um i learned about civil war reenacting and showed up at a civil war event and at that point i'd been a drummer i owned my own drum so i was i was a pretty good sales pitch uh saying you know hey i i, I know a little bit about this hobby happy to come in and i wound up getting into uh civil war reenacting and civil war reenacting uh true 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 to uh to the stereotype they were all about letting me shoot at 14 years old and uh <laughs> <laughs> so so how old no. are you 16 and uh <laughs> but i wanted you go. And so they let me shoot, and got in with them. Wound up uh, being involved in the movie Gettysburg for a few scenes, which was kind of oh, cool. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, and it was also was was nearby a lot of the, those filming of movies in the '80s and '90s. So we had uh, friends that that got the opportunity to work in Last of the Mohegans and Glory and and whatnot. Wow. So those, those are you know good years to be reenactors actors some some of these major historic movies uh, reenactors certainly got to be a part of. Um, so somewhere along the line, uh, I did Civil War for a bit, and then you know I dropped out of reenacting or formal reenacting and kind of got into the Renfair scene for a little while and and Society for uh, Creative Anachronism, which are you know sort of my, my real bad years of non-reenacting, but, but yet kind of close, um, you know, clothing and 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 and, and history, although is anyway not, not exactly true history, but. But I did that for a few years. And then coming into college, I wound up running into a gentleman by the name of Roy Dre, who's uh, who's prominent in our community. And uh, Roy Dre and I wound up becoming college roommates. But before we did that, as we were meeting one another somewhere along the line, hey, you like history, I like history. Yeah, well, I did this thing called reenacting. Well, I did this thing called reenacting. And uh, and that's where we got back into it, back into Civil War reenacting. At that point, my reenacting focus really changed. Probably in large part to Roy, who's just, just, just an incredible force in terms of material culture and being able to create things. And that's probably where I got into what at the time was called in the Civil War community, hardcore or campaigner reenacting, which, uh, you know, we know today as progressive reenacting. Um, but it, but it was really avant garde in the day of guys who really, um, started to, to, to get you know, elbow deep into material culture and guys who got access to museums and museum pieces and really started, um, doing their utmost to create, you know, museum quality replica equipment. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I really kind of broke open and really found my love, uh, with reenacting because before that, um, you know, I I did it, but I did it as, a as a kid and just, you know, kind of had a different appreciation. But what I started to do then, at a necessity, was I started making my own stuff because I couldn't afford stuff. So this really took that those initial crafting skills and really started honing them and developing them and putting them to purpose. Because now the issue was, well, one, I still could not afford stuff, but two, um, the only way to get this stuff was to make it. No one sold it, and and, and there was definitely a little bit of you know. Of a of a cast system is too strong, but uh, you know, one who had good kit was respected in the hobby, right? Mm So, so your uh, your ability to gain respect and appreciation and acceptance in the hobby was only limited by your ability to seek out authentic equipment and to recreate it. So there was really people sort of wore wore their resume of what they knew, right? And and uh, and that was that was appealing, right? It was appealing to kind of learn from these experts and to be part of that and to be part of that discussion. Um, so anyway, that I did that for a few years, and then I became an active duty marine and started moving around and moved away from the East Coast. So I uh, was 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 losing my ability to maintain access to civil war world and so i jumped into uh german Landsknecht, which is um our early 1500s 16th century german mercenary pikemen uh, i did that and then somewhere along the line transitioned into imperial roman reenacting and all the way wow. fully making my own kit which i still have now um getting you know developing skills in leather working and woodworking and metalworking and I did that for a few years, came back to the East Coast, dabbled in Civil War once again with some old friends, but um, I, I just never really kind of found the same connection to it. And, uh, and then lo and behold, Ben Tyson and I knew each other from a past life. And uh, Ben said, uh, hey, do you want to get back into Rev War reenacting? And uh, slowly but surely, uh, or begrudgingly, slowly but surely and thoroughly begrudgingly, I did. And um, here we are several years later after that so so yeah about 30 years of reenacting experience spread out over um, one two three four four solid time periods of impressions with yeah uh, from, from you
0: know, roman to civil war so you've seen it all you never did world war Two though
1: No, no. um, And and like, you know, I dabbled in some other kind of medieval stuff, like I said, during the society creative anachronism days, which is less reenacting more sport fighting. But still, there was some, some, some learning of, of, uh, of of a little bit of material culture and certainly styles. The, uh, the degree of authenticity was just not there, but, but still, you know, exposure nonetheless.
0: Yeah, I think then that, uh, I mean, it seems to me that that such a varied experience that you're you're bringing to the company right now um, is I don't know I guess it's it's pretty unique I mean you you can really um, kind of have a, a perspective that that few others have having toured the globe and the I mean the the, the imaginary globe and the imaginary yeah. time <laughs> frames right um, and you can kind of see how there are. Particular things in in the American Revolution era reenacting that you didn't see elsewhere, and so um, it's pretty cool to be able to bring that and something that you know I don't because this is, this is my first um, entry into it, so I think maybe that's um, that's why you get stucky with the became stucky with the unit historian <laughs> the, one aspect of it, but um, I think you know there's a lot of questions that we always get asked when people are when we when they hear that we're reenactors, right? and um so when i think about just like the basic you know 101 uh of reenacting you know something like uh how do you know when to die or something like that you know on the battlefield um you know is it is the answer for us right is that either we uh we run out of powder or uh, or for uh, in your case, right? You don't want to spend any more pattern.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I so <laughs> or I actually,
0: good, or you find a nice, nice soft spot to yeah, land.
1: Um, yeah. So yeah. Well, I'm known. I have a reputation to maintain that I I don't think I've ever survived a battle, and if, and if I yeah if I did, it, it was it, only because it, it it ended before I could die. <laughs>
0: That's a good point. I don't think I've ever actually seen you live through a scenario. No, um, no. <laughs> Is it the same? I mean, is it the rules? I mean, I, I joke, right? But I mean, it, it could be anywhere from, from those things to um, a commanding officer tells you, okay, realistically for a scenario, you got to start taking casualties is that, has that been the same for you across other time periods? I mean, how do you do a Roman reenacting?
1: Yeah. So, so, so good questions. Um, let me, let me start with, with, with one aspect before we go into this is you were talking about, um, um, my, my global perspective over 2000 years. Right. Um, and, and, and and if you don't have 30 years and lots of sewing patience to, to do that, the book I recommend is called man of war by Charlie Schroeder. Um, Schroeder, S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R. We can probably link it. Yeah, and, we'll put it on the, we'll the blog. And, and it's uh, My Adventures in the World of Historic Reenactment. And he basically, he, he kind of has this this idea. He, he had done some Ren Faire time when he was a kid, but somehow got this calling or wanted to learn about reenactment. So he winds up going through everything from like Roman to Vietnam, to Civil War, to, you know, Bateau um, across the Great Lakes, and, and a whole bunch of things in between. And what you realize is his experience is very much the experience that I lived over 30 years, although he probably did it a few years uh, writing this book, was that there are certainly trends throughout the community, yet each time period has sort of a different culture in and of, in and of itself, but there's certainly some broader trends and themes that that transcend time period. um mm. And, and, and so, so that would be the one thing to, I know we don't have time to talk about all that reenacting politics and reenacting community and communities. Um, but one thing that does stand out for the American Revolution reenacting is American Revolution reenacting has the strongest umbrella organizations to include the PAR, British Brigade, Continental Line, and, uh, what I guess the, uh, Northwest, um, Territory Alliance, if I mm-hmm. got that right. Um, as the strongest umbrella organizations that 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 appropriately impose a level of order and organization that other reenacting worlds don't really seem to have. Um, Civil War has some organizations, but they're not. They don't have the same degree of strength. Excuse me, I just lost my headphones. Bear with me for a second. <laughs> no worries. Um, they don't have the same degree of strength that our umbrella organizations have, which which I actually, as I have gotten older and have brought my kids into the hobby, appreciate um, because it, it provides a level of quality control and backstopping um to and and, and holding people holding units accountable in terms of safety and, and and good conduct. Well that that's a good point.
0: I mean and let's let's raise it to that kind of higher level for now because when we talk about okay how do you orchestrate a battle in the reenacting community um that that was you know let's 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 take it a level higher than just you as an individual on the field i mean how our how scenarios run um we do have these umbrella organizations we do have the safety aspect of it and also an accountability thing so that you as a unit when you're on the field of a battle reenactment you're kind of uh I don't know, I, not really the, like there's enforcement measures at place, but I mean, you feel like you have to really be in line kind of right well, to, well, to I, follow I, a th- scenario and not get, not go beyond what, what is agreed upon or what.
1: Yeah. What yeah. So I think there about? actually is, there is enforcement measures in place. And, okay. um, you know, y- if you were to be so egregious in violation, your umbrella organizations could kick you out. Right. And, yeah. and you have to be, you have to have member status in the umbrella organizations to be a part of most events. Now there certainly are private events that don't, don't take on um, or don't involve themselves with the umbrella organizations. But, but if you were at a brigade of the American revolution event as a brigade of the American revolution uh, unit member, and you were to do something so egregious, you could be reprimanded to the point of being asked to leave and, you know, losing insurance coverages and whatnot. So, so there absolutely is, um, you know, a level of control um civil war reenacting at the time that i did it didn't have that and so you had units of dubious quality of dubious leadership uh without really the accountability and and now being a father and bringing my kids into it and being a little bit older when i was 14 it was great right like i could
0: could could do whatever you wanted
1: i could shoot a gun I i had a brace of pistols i was like billy the kid out there but um but you know, at 41 with kids, realizing you know I was exposed to things in that community that no 14-year-old probably had business being exposed to. Um, so so yeah, so so I've definitely learned. Um, so so I think going back into like you know reenacting and 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 you're talking about battle orchestration, and how do you die? Uh, when I asked this question, the first thing I say is well, you have to understand there's different types of reenactments, and I loosely uh, think of them. There's probably three types. There's uh, living history there's a uh, battle pageantry and then there's tacticals um living history is uh, i think a day in the life of a person in history uh, soldier civilian or whatever they are think interactive living classroom uh so it's kind of a day in the life you can touch feel smell and interact with a, a piece of history oftentimes there's a sort of a first or third person narrative that you know someone will be in character or they will sort of talk about the person they represent in kind of a third person quality um and that living history is you know we find this in small historic sites we find this in museums and we find this in large reenactments played out in particular vignettes um, the next one is battle pageantry and battle pageantry is probably what most uh, mo- mo- most people think of in, in reenactments and that's that is uh, recreating a battle, uh, whether true or fictional, on a historic site or not. Uh, and that is generally a scripted battle to, that follows a, a, a script in history or maybe follow kind of historical fiction in the sense of this could have been how a battle was or how a battle played out. Um, and then the last is, is tacticals. And those are non-public events. Those are reenactor-only events. And those are reenactor war games um in our experience our fourth company uh we have not done tacticals in quite a few years and 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 i know they are in the uh american revolution uh world um they're just not nearly as common as you find them in other in 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 other reenacting genres for instance the world war ii community does a lot more tacticals than they probably do battle pageantry um Mm. romans uh really do a lot more living history than they do battle pageantry but they just don't really have the the numbers the certainly numbers, in America yeah. uh in in Europe they do um they also do tacticals there's actually a site who I want to say there in, in in Arkansas um really? like, could That'd be, be crazy could be off in that yeah they have a recreated fort and village and they do a like a once a year kind of week long interactive tactical with um with sort of you know political intrigue and spies and whatnot, so it's it's it, you know I, I don't want to say it's like it's it's like a live role playing because that you know somewhat demeans it, but it's this you know guys are in character and they're playing Romans and Celts and, and 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 civilians and trying to sort of work through a tactical problem that has a political aspect to it. So um so yeah I, I can I can find a link to that and get that over to you uh, if you want. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, so, so that talks about the three types of reenactments and then right. how do you die? Uh, do you want me to go into that or you want to, <laughs> I
0: don't know what's your favorite way?
1: <laughs> so, 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 so dying, um, is kind of a function of the reenactment. If you're in a tactical, I've right. been in a right. tacticals and, and often there's some sort of, uh, adjudication authority or adjudication mechanism where usually it's, you know, judges and hats with white bands around and they're making calls, you know, usually if a unit's in a compromised position. I've seen examples where they say, you know, okay, you know, Captain, your unit's being fired on by both flanks. You can give ground and retreat, or you can stay here and take casualties. So that's where the unit commander has to decide, you know, is it in his mission to sort of preserve this, you know, to, to hold the position at the sacrifice of his unit, or does he give up the position due to overwhelming uh odds and firepower? Or sometimes it's a little bit of both, where he'll say, Hey, you have to take some casualties, but you will take more if you stay, or you can retreat. Um, and so that's judges adjudicating that I've been to events where you have little casualty cards where at certain times, um, uh, the, uh, the, the company commander will, in the scenario will be forced to sort of activate, you know, so many of his casualty guards and guys kind of look at this card and says, you know, you, you fall down with a head wound or, you know, mm. you, you're, you're wounded or you're dead or, or, you know, you, you run away. Um, I've been in that sort of stuff where that usually, again, you see those in tacticals, but sometimes battlefield scenario, a battle pageantry will do that. And then, uh, and then as we know, uh, the other, you know, default way of determining death is usually when something goes wrong, uh, or you're not feeling of health and you need to take a break. <laughs> I, I personally have been doing this for so long that I honestly, the battle pageantry I just like watching it. So, so I use the chance to get a great seat uh, to die yeah. somewhere in the battlefield. So I can kind of watch it, uh, you know, <laughs> real, well, no, real close I, and and not from the spectator scene. And,
0: you know, know, I've noticed that you know, we're living in the world of smartphones that we do, uh, corpses take some amazing shots of a battle. I will say I have definitely, uh, I've seen some great battle footage recently, clearly from a dead guy on the field.
1: <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so, so, and, uh, so I used to do this, uh, um, uh, uh photo photos of the dead series and every time I would die I would take these photos and it'd be like, you know, a hand or a foot or like a hat of just kinda like, you know, what a corpse would be seeing as as a line of troops is marching over you. Yeah. Um so, so I've definitely cool. uh I Yeah, a little morbid, but but I've
0: I've I've enjoyed well, that. I mean, hey, what's morbid when we're reenacting dying all the time? You know, on a field well, of battle, like yeah, you know, it's, a, yeah it's a thin line. I think yeah. the other question I always usually get is, um, well, I, and we touched on this a little bit when we talk about organization. So you know, we talked about what happens at a personal level when you're in something like a living history or a battle pageant. We talked about the umbrella organizations the next thing would be kind of in the middle, you know, what lies in the middle and that's the unit, you know, the particular unit that we're members of. And so a lot of people are always surprised when they hear that, Oh, okay, well there's actually like pretty structured units in existence. And when you talk about military reenacting, you know, um, it's a whole nother animal when you talk about living history events, if, if you're out there doing your own thing, but, but if you're if you're on a battle uh, scenario, wow, you know these units are pretty, uh, pretty sophisticated in their structure. or They can be, which is something that I didn't realize uh, before I got into it. That that's how it was organized. That um, you can actually, in theory, right, like pick a unit to join, and that you're you're part of that unit's culture. And different different units have their own culture and their own priorities and things like that. So. Um, I don't know. Maybe you could uh, offer some thoughts uh, on that and then maybe how you've seen it change over time when you talk about unit organizations and things like that.
1: Sure. So, um, so, so certainly with, so I started actually in the BAR and our unit now is, is, is is a British Brigade member and we're reactivating our BAR status uh, sort of as we speak. Um, The BAR uh, is, is where I noticed kind of dual unit organization where you have the, the, the unit leadership of the entity organization, usually the nonprofit that is the unit. And then you have this sort of field leadership and they were not always the same. So you could have a president of the unit and, you know, boards of directors or however they set themselves up with secretaries Mm. and and treasurers. And then you have your captains and NCOs, which might or might not be the same people. Oftentimes they were, because if you're kind of most you're involved in one aspect You're typically involved in the other aspect, but that's very much how our unit is, right? So our unit has, has the actual organization of fourth company Brigade of Guards of America, which is not, which is not, which is not recreated um, necessarily in our unit leadership in the field. Um, Now, again, those that are in leadership are often in leadership of the organization, but, but not necessarily. And I, I don't, I, I I understand that to be a function of of the Brigade of the American Revolution and requirements for units to have sort of charters and bylaws, um, and it actually seems very uh, very colonial American, right? Where you know you have units yeah, that true, vote and have charters. members, right? Yeah, right. We should right. have so a seems- royal
0: charter since we're in the gardens, kind of. Um, <laughs> but, but that's but a good I point. Go
1: ahead.
0: Well, i was just going to say that that's that's another aspect of the unit that. You know, not only are people surprised. Oh, um, you know, you can belong to a unit like that's how it's organized. But you're right. I mean, at least for the guards, right? We're, we're a 501c3, and we have a, a nonprofit identity, a corporate identity, right, separate from things. So, I mean, there's there's so many layers of of organization that that you that you encounter when you when you get into the reenacting world. But yeah, that's. You but, but I
1: find that to be I, only. I've only really seen that in the the American Revolution um, sort of time really? period, and, and I think I don't know if that's a function of of the BAR and, and maybe the British Brigade to a lesser extent. Um, but but I I found it there. In in most other time periods, the guy who own, who runs the unit sort of owns the unit and in hmm. civil war i was part of a unit that that stood up and a lot of these things were registered as llcs um, and so they were re- registered as corporate organizations and and the 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 leaders of the unit were were the leaders of those small businesses so so they so they were not
0: nonprofits they were just for-profit corporations Theory, yeah, right? I mean, I don't think they made any, any profit, money, but, right? but I mean, right. Yeah,
1: yeah. They were, they were entities, um, or they were something else, but basically the guy who, you know, the captain or the centurion or whatever he was who ran who ran the unit was the guy who, who ran the unit. So he had, he had the preponderance. He had the unit equipment. He basically financed the unit. Um, he was in charge of making all unit decisions. Uh, he would hire and fire people as he, as he, as he, uh, uh, felt fit. And, and that was that. And so you either were, you know, signed up to be under his officership or you left. Um, and so, 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 so a little different. Um, hmm. but I don't, I don't, I mean, I think they both offer. They both offer, you know, benefits, right? Uh, one, uh, one guy who owns the unit and owns all the assets can do what he wants with the unit very quickly, very flatly, and and uh, and make make changes or or drive the unit in the direction it wants to go. Units that are sort of governed by boards of directors and, and require votes or you know, move move much slower. But again, I I wonder if it's not too much like, in the time period too. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, so um <laughs> We're like the American Congress, you know, (laughs) we don't do anything fast. Nothing, never, nothing ever moves fast. Right. Um, By design, by design, like you said, because it's, it's when you, when you set up those layers of checks and balances, like when you have a board of directors, when you have multiple company officers in a formal environment with proper checks and balances on them, I mean, you, you are going to get the nature of your unit is not going to change overnight according to a single person's whim.
1: Right. Um, Right. So. Whereas where I've been on units where they said you know we're going to do artillery and they would literally like they found some way to have a cannon and a few months later they had an artillery aspect to <laughs> it and so yeah. so uh, yeah, yeah it, it's just yeah kind of kind of neat how how they've all you know how how these different organizations um run but, yeah and but I mean yeah.
0: they're they're all going to have their different personalities right and and something that I've talked about on previous podcasts and in particular, when I was just speaking with the, the ladies at the Dutch Milliners, where we were talking about how there's such a broad range of kind of motivations that bring people to the hobby. And I think what you hit on in your introduction to your experience today is something that you particularly really drives you is the material aspect of it. So, I mean, you, you personally enjoy making your own items. Um, yep, so that, that comes across pretty clear, right? And I think that you do a good job of getting people involved in that. So I think that's a that's you know for American Revolution uh, hobby. And I don't know how it is in Civil War. I mean, I guess with the Roman stuff, you had to make your own. But I had a very small um, sample of experience doing some World War II stuff, and I know that they can get by. Obviously, they're very lucky to have machine made items. That would be period correct um whereas we to be period correct right we were supposed to be hand making everything or hand right. finishing everything right so um that was a, something that i think was when i signed up to do reenacting it wasn't something that i knew that i was going to really get into or take a liking to but i have kind of as as the years have gone on um come to really appreciate it much more and i think it is a for many of us, it is a big part of the hobby, right? Is is um, not only making the stuff, but researching how to make it. I mean, it, it dominates a lot of our time, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, different time periods are have the fortune of or misfortune of you know uh, of of being able to use you know various machines or not. Um, you know, I. I and as well as their knowledge and surviving materials and documents, right? So you have photographs for the civil, War, right? We, we can actually well, see photographs. And for world war two, I know, I know back in the nineties when guys were doing it, they were still using original equipment. I mean, I still yeah. have my grandfather's stuff in a box that I can pull out right. and do a Pacific theater Marine. He, he was a CB, but he had Marine equipment. I mean, I still have Marine uniforms, right? and, and, and 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 the you know various you know riggings and web belts and magazine pouches. Um, so so it's still again. I don't know if you can still buy it in army navy stores, but certainly in the '90s you were able to use stuff which, surplus stuff, yeah. sur- surplus stuff which would actually work. Uh, uh, or guys can you know machine make it and and the materials easier to come by. Whereas the stuff that we're looking for is made you know techniques that don't exist anymore. Um you know, materials that that are really you know, buff leather, which is like the only people that really use it are the you know European militaries um, and then some other European history groups. But but, you know, there's there's limited, limited suppliers to the tune of like sometimes one, um, you know, our, our 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 wool is, you know, and Phillips wool is is you know, extensively researched and, you know, it's it's produced when it's produced and when it's not. It's not there, right? Or you're getting, you know, you're trying to find stocks. So, so we really, we, we certainly suffer. Um, I think we kind of fall in a really tough spot because we have just enough material that, that we know what right looks like, (laughs) but we don't really have access. Yeah. But we don't really have access to how to to recreate it. So it's always a frustrating experience. Whereas, you know, with Civil War or with uh, Roman and, um, you know, German Lands Connect, the, the the material almost doesn't exist. I mean, it's, I mean, man, you're, you're you know, you're, it's like a rusted pile of steel and like, ah, oh, that's a piece of Roman armor. Um, Let me, we'll x-ray it and we'll kind of deduce what, you know, what the plates look like. But for the most part, there's really almost no surviving material. I, I, I mean, there is some. I, I know someone's going to call me out on this. Yes, there's museums that have stuff, but it is few and far between. Um, And certainly not like, you know, Civil War, American, uh, well, American Revolution doesn't have, have a ton. Of well, it. it's funny um, that
0: you that is, I think I think maybe that is your unique experience talking because, like you know, you can compare you can compare the revolution to the Romans, and clearly, right? Yeah, we have so much more t- to deal with in terms of historical record. But me having come into American Revolution reenacting just from this is my first period. It, it, it continues to bother me, and especially in the world where we have, um, you know, access to so many resources online and it's always so easy to find an answer uh, to your questions. It continues to bother me the concept of we just don't know and probably will never know the answer to something. You know, like we yeah, you're probably right that we have just enough. Like we've just we, we kind of just are on that other side of the line that we're lucky for example in the guards that we have the the dowdswell portrait of an officer in the guards early in the war that we base our uniform off of if we didn't have that we'd be really i mean we we'd have the some documentary evidence in the orderly books and things like that but i mean we'd be really out of luck
1: yeah Um, so if you're a roman you would be you'd be climbing trajan's column in rome and trying to look at a a a sculpture right yeah (laughs) And trying to figure out what armor and how they how they how many you know uh, pila they 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 carried right and how they carried that that equipment Where, you know Germans German Landsknecht again same thing you know some some you know surviving swords and, and pieces of armor here and there but you're looking at artwork right and you're yeah. looking at artwork yeah. from the sack of Rome uh, you know produced of the time period slightly thereafter and you're trying to interpret a seam line based on, you know, some, some oil painting in a, in a, in a monastery in Italy that has, you know, that that's doing the stations of the cross in painting, but it was painted in the 1500s. So they were using contemporary images of the time of the artist, but they were doing the, you know, whatever martyrdom of of such and such saint. But yet they're all in contemporary outfits, right? So that's what we know. What German lands, right? And we're we're interpreting uh, a change in color in the back of the guy's uh, hosen or uh, hose to interpret that's where the seam line was. Um, wow. The seam line actually went up went up the back of the back of both legs, uh, not on the sides of our ones, but like uh, like we see now. <laughs> so. So, yeah, right. Like, I mean, so, but, but unfortunately, you don't have enough to really know, like, what is correct, right? Whereas now we have enough material and we have enough records to say, well, not only do we know the seam line, but we know how they felled the seams on the insides of the trousers, right? So, so, so it's one level to get it historically accurate from the outside, it's another level. Let's also get it historically accurate on the inside and you know we know what materials they used and how the thread was spun and the thread weights whereas with roman stuff you don't know thread weights i mean if you have something that survived it survived 2000 years because it was in some cold mucky water in like northern england uh along hadrian's wall and you know that's what you know what a leather shoe looks like right so so um so yeah, so so you know, one of the terms that that we use, Bill, you know, you and I use, Bill, is we say, well, you know, just we might not have it right, but we know it's not wrong either, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's kind of yeah. this continuum of like how correct are we? You know, we know some things are absolutely right, we know some things are wrong, and there's just kind of this space in between of well, it could be possible. We think, you know, we have this one sort of this one piece of evidence that is suggestive that we might be on the right course. So we know it's not wrong, but we don't know if it's right either. Um, And I think we, we have to sit in that and that, that can be frustrating, especially when you find new pieces of evidence and you realize you're, you're you're not, you're not wrong was indeed wrong. (laughs) And you now know what a right is. So there goes all the kit. Let's redo it. I know.
0: Yeah. And that was something that I, yeah, that was another thing that I talked to the Dutch milliners about and said, you know, it's, we're a, where a lot of drama can happen is, you know, you don't want to hear that you're wrong when you just got done spending a ton of time on something in good faith. But, um, it's part of a lot of It's just part of the active discovery, you know, for me. And, um, in some ways, I think in my life, the, the hobby is a unique outlet because it's like, I don't really to, to get to, and I, I think, maybe this is triggered by something you said earlier, but I mean, to really push yourself to the limits and, and challenge yourself, it's not really a question of like talent. Like you don't have to be naturally talented at, at reenacting, right? You just have to have a curiosity to want to learn more, right? And right. and where where you stop on that scale is how far you'll take yourself or, or find uh, other people in the hobby who have that same level of drive. But um, that seems to be kind of the common, the common thing that binds us together is, is at least varying levels of of just curiosity of, now clearly for you it 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 it'll drive you to to examine the seams and uh, and and um you know of the most minute level details which you get a thrill out of um and you're dragging me with you to get to that point as well and I, <laughs> I'm enjoying the ride I mean in a positive right. way I mean right. it, um but I joked that yesterday. You know my i disappeared for a while while i was on the phone with you and when i came back my my wife was like well, what were you doing i was like oh i was having a discussion about ostrich plumes for about 30
1: minutes so <laughs> right right well you know, you know, I, you know you're
0: you, you know you're a reenactor when you get to that point when you're debating how many ostrich plumes should be in a hat
1: uh, well but, and, you know the thing yeah. is these 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 actually breed to some other you know these, these breed skills that one are applicable throughout all of life uh you know my my you know, one of my more endearing qualities to my own wife is the fact that I can hem her dresses and restore well, buttonholes and get I to I the fixed... point where you're
0: making stuff. Yeah, you're right. That, yeah, is, I, that I, is, that is that is skill I, and that I, is talent I, I, at a certain point when you get I, to the I, actual sewing.
1: Yeah. I've fixed leather, ba- leather handbags and shoes, but, but to me, it's a, it's a great degree of freedom because it allows me to reenact whatever I want. Right. Like, so all I need to do is figure out a pattern and get the materials and I can do any, I can do, you know, Almost any time period in history, uh, mm-hmm. which is what I've I've, en- I've enjoyed kind of dabbling, walking through history, doing these different time periods, and even inside the American Revolution, I have about three or four different impressions that I've pulled off, and most of them I've I've handmade or with the help of friends, or I've traded, you know, gear, or I've upgraded gear, uh, you know, retrofitted after the fact, and can do multiple impressions, so I can you know attend a market fair as a civilian go to a guards event or go to the event that the guards aren't at, but another unit who I'm associated with is at, uh because I don't know, I like that setting or, or, or the guards don't have an event that month, but I wanted to do something anyway. So I went with another unit. And again, I could put together another level, you know, another kit and, and it's just a matter of, you know, uh, having the time to actually j- just make it. And, you know, over the cold winter I make, I make it. D- you know? mm-hmm. So, it gives me a, a degree of freedom to experience different aspects of the hobby.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what would be your what would be your pitch if you if you had somebody who was on the fence? You know, let's say, we, yeah. and we we kind of run into these people every now and then. There, and and some of them end up committing and, and and going full force into the hobby. Other ones don't, and they just have to find whether it's it it fits them or not. But you got somebody who is you know kind of. Kind of inquisitive, wants to wants to potentially try out some 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 events and things. I mean, how do you it, give, given all that you've been through, um, you know, what would you what would you tell a potential recruit, or whether it be to the guards or or, or someone else? I mean, okay, any advice yeah, I think you the, share.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair question. So so there's a couple kind of a couple logics we need to explore to find like the ideal fit for you or for for a person who's asking. One. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's always important to remember that that you need to enjoy the membership of the organization. That's one of the things that attracted me. Most of the guards, um, you know, much of our much of our leadership is, or much of our organization is, is former military. We um, we're, most of us are associated with the government in some capacity uh, in Northern Virginia, and so uh, similar mindsets, similar professional. Uh, um, considerations uh similar similar life paths so they're so first and foremost it's just people i enjoy being with, right regardless of whether we're in british uniforms or whatever uniforms it's it's a group of of men and women who i just enjoy i have you know like interests on a personal social level the next is uh you know, I would say that's important. It's also important to find a unit that you identify with in some way. And, and in fact, for me, I actually didn't identify with the guards at all. Um, you know, I knew Ben and Ben pulled me into it. So I actually learned about the guards. But but I would say if you're interested in the unit, find a unit you identify with. Maybe it's a unit that was present at a battlefield uh, in your, you know, w- where you live, right? So, you know, a unit has a particular battle history that interests you. Maybe you have a relative that was on one side or another. Um, maybe it's just your kind of ethnic descent, right? You're, I don't know, you know, classically, oh, I'm, I'm of Scottish descent, I wanna go join a Highlander unit. Or, um, or maybe I wanna join a unit, who, you know, I joined the Bergen County Militia Unit when I was up in Bergen County, New Jersey, but, but that was an appropriate fit because they were active in the area in which I lived. So, you know, it, for me, it would have felt odd if the unit that I joined was only ever present in the Battle of Charleston, And yet I lived in New Jersey and never actually got to recreate that battle. So just like we got to go to Guilford Courthouse, which is always a bit magical to say, "Wow, this is the ground," or I'm recreating, you know, just just a glimmer of 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 the soldier I'm trying to represent. I'm 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 touching the same ground he touched, you know. And so that's always exciting. So so finding some some connection to a unit is important. And then I would say, you know, finding where these mix is going out to looking for these reenactments large and small and meeting up with these organizations and giving them a try. And I, you know, I think we have to remember, you know, we, we look for recruits and recruits look for us and it's a two way street, right? You know, we want a recruit. That's going to be a good fit for us. uh, And we hope we're a good fit for a recruit because that creates an enduring long-term relationship. Um, You know, we as an organization just aren't willing to accept everybody we want people that that meet our organization ideals uh and that are compatible with them and are compatible with 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 the membership right we're a small organization we don't want someone that's gonna um you know come in and 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 create you know disturbance amongst the organization uh you know nor
0: nor would someone i mean i think yeah i mean yeah know
1: whether when you when you fit in with
0: people when you fit in with a unit and and you you know a recruits not going to want to be in a unit where they feel like it's not th- that that unit has different goals. It's not, yeah, it's not an or, organic, right, it's not a good fit. Cause everybody's going to be, nobody's gonna be happy with the arrangement. So I think you, that's a good point. I mean, you, you, we can sense it. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of like picking out a school or, you know, I mean, like you get a sense of like, okay, you know what? Yeah, I feel, I'm feeling what these guys are, and and ladies are all, all about, you know? So that's a so good, that's a good point.
1: So what I would say is, anytime you find a unit that you you know you think you're zeroing in on a unit that seems to be a fit, that that most of the units have loaner kit. um, Ask to use that loaner kit, try them out for a couple of events, and then make a hard decision. Um, And and I would even tell them, say, hey, I'm trying out a couple different units um, and to see which one's a good fit for me, uh, which one's a good fit for me and my wife, me and my kid, right? Because different you know different organizations or different age bracket, age demographics or you know social demographics for each organization. So find one that's a good fit. And you know, speaking of that, that was another reason why I like the guards is that there's there's a there's a degree of family orientation of you know multiple generations mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, of of members in our organization, which I thought was a particularly good fit for me since my boys were interested in, and, and wanted to become involved. Um, but you know, different organizations kind of have different demographics in finding out one that that you're compatible with and it's compatible with you. So I would always, I would always try a unit out a few times um, and go with them to a couple of events. And I wouldn't, and I, I wouldn't shy away and tell them, you know, tell them you're, you're looking at other units as well. I think that would, yeah. Unfortunately, I think the problem is, I think a lot of us just kind of stumble into it. Right. We, we, you know, especially when we're not, when we're so new to reenacting, we don't even know that there are different units out there. Right. Um, And we just kind of find the first unit that we sort of get in touch with that seems to have a uniform we kind of like, I think is how many people do it. But, um, but if you have the time, explore different units, give them different options and try to try to think about it and do a little research on who the unit is. And, and if you identify with their, their actual history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's, it's, it's great advice. And obviously comes from, from an experience of, of testing all kinds of different units and having all kinds of different, uh, well, experiences from it. Um, I think you know we've we can chat for longer, but there there there's so many other topics that I think we that need their own whole episode uh, dedicated to. In fact, we had I I was chatting with some people about doing kind of a a kid related episode and and about how to how to involve your kid in the hobby. And clearly, with with Mateo as as a as our drummer, that'd be a good one to 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 rope you into maybe in the future. Um,
1: Yeah, you got to learn how to sew because they grow quick. (laughs)
0: yeah well i mean that's yeah that's that's a real challenge right i mean it's one thing for an adult to to drop some serious cash on a kit but we're not growing out of we're wearing them out but we're not growing out of yeah
1: yeah no that that is a whole nother level and and it it often you know for me with you know historical actually really being a forefront of, of the image i i try to put out it's definitely tough when you have a growing kid and you know are you willing to commit you know. $150 on shoes that he's going to wear, you know, grow out of in a year. And, or do you accept something that's a slightly below historic standard and hope no one scrutinizes it too, too closely. Well, just don't
0: don't get him a phone you know just just get him like some 18th century <laughs> shoes
1: <laughs> well I, I I got him a Jacob's ladder I only let him play with it 15 <laughs> minutes <a day> <laughs> yeah. he's, he's gonna rot his brain otherwise <laughs> the, uh, what's the the ball the cup <laughs> no, that's all you need man what, yeah, what yeah, do you yeah, need this yeah, phone for yeah, yeah. Jacob's ladder, oh. just don't no only only 30 15 minutes. Yeah. God. Yeah. Kids rotting uh, their brains not doing their apprenticeship, playing too much. Oh my time.
0: god. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, um, um all right. Well hey, thanks, Greg. I know I, yeah, I know you gotta go and uh and speaking of kids, you know you're gonna have a, a little one on the way as soon, so best of luck with that. Um but thanks for joining us um, yeah, this time my around. Will. And we'll be tapping your expertise. Um if you you know, um I'll introduce it. I I, I by the time anybody listens to this, it will already be in the introduction to the episode, but, uh, your article on, on the guards, um, and their, uh, service during the Gordon riots in 1780, I think was, uh, was a big hit in turn in talking about, um, kind of the 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 pitfalls to watch out for in, in interpreting historical artwork um, so looking forward to uh, tapping your brain for for future uh, things like that as well so I appreciate everything that you're uh, contributing to the the company and the hobby and thanks for thanks for being on today
1: well, well, my pleasure. And I'd be remiss if I if I didn't thank you for that article, because you certainly contributed nah. to it. And I know you didn't take the credit, but it was that was actually a really fun experience between you and I. It was fun putting it putting that fun. together and 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 learning and stumbling and making arguments and adjusting those and we're arguments. We're
0: going to find We will find the orders for those ostrich plumes. I promise you. <laughs> we will, we
1: will yeah, find yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, uh,
0: <laughs> if I don't if I. <laughs> It might take me 30 <laughs> where, years, where, but where I'm going to find those ostrich plumes.
1: Our, our 3,000 3, ostrich plumes being shipped to the colonies yeah. over here. three to 5,000, we're not sure. But, but there's got to be, there's boat fulls of ostrich plumes.
0: Yeah, yeah, to the listener, we'll fill we'll you on this inside joke. But the idea is that we have ostrich plumes in our hats for the guards, and we have instructions in the orderly books about how to cut the cats, hats down but no instructions to place ostrich plumes in them. But we have full, uh, we have the the painting of a, of the officer with the plumes. So we're thinking. Okay. And there's another
1: there's another just, sketch that sh- that has some yeah. shadowy like plumes. It could also be a bayonet. So yeah, yeah so how did how did the guards just
0: magically end up with five thousand or so ostrich plumes overnight? Is is right, the mystery to thousand, be solved? In the a, next a thousand decade. guards
1: members with five plumes in their hat equals you know five thousand yeah. ostrich plumes a year, if not more. So. It's the the great hostage blue mystery. All right, well,
0: (laughs) I'll let you go before we uh, we drag listeners into more inside jokes. But uh, anyway, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, Uh, take care,
1: Bill.